It is a myth to assume that non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, is a behavior in which only adolescents engage. Adults self-injure too, and we will talk about this in future episodes on this podcast. But today, we will be focusing on what therapy might look like for adolescents who self-injure, as well as common parent concerns. For instance, how can parents expect to be involved in therapy? What happens if your child continues to self-injure even while in therapy? Should you increase supervision or even keep them home from camp or vacation? What if it seems like your child isn't really trying to make the most out of therapy? To answer these questions and to provide a glimpse into therapy with youth who self-injure, I am joined today, all the way from New Zealand, by Dr. Jessica Garish. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Jessica Garish is a clinical psychologist and postdoctoral research fellow based in Wellington, New Zealand. Dr. Garish has been conducting research in the area of adolescent well-being for over a decade and has been working with young people and their families as a clinical psychologist since 2011. She's particularly interested in emotion regulation and adolescent well-being, as well as the development and implementation of feasible and evidence-based programs to support young people. Currently, she splits her time between working in clinical practice and providing clinical guidance on the Youth Wellbeing Study, a research lab in a school of psychology at Victoria University of Wellington, which undertakes research on adolescent self-injury. Welcome, Dr. Garish. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. To start things off, how did you become interested in self-injury and treating young people who self-injure? Well, when I first started my journey in psychology as an undergraduate student, I was doing some part-time work as a youth worker in a local youth space. And I really, really enjoyed working with young people and wanted to understand the current issues in mental health for young people in New Zealand. And this was in the last year of my undergraduate studies. And while I was contemplating what to do for honours research, there was this opportunity to work with Mark Wilson in the School of Psychology who had begun work in NSSI. And I decided that I would become involved in his lab and pursue my postgraduate research with him and became more and more interested in self-injury and ended my training to become a clinician. So as a clinician, in your experience, at what point do young people who self-injure come to see you? Do they come specifically to address self-injury, a related difficulty like anxiety or depression, or are their parents typically the ones who decide to enroll them in therapy? So I suppose it would be important to put my work into context first. So I work in a secondary mental health service in New Zealand. By the time someone gets to see me, they've often struggled for a little bit of time with the difficulties that underlie their self-injury. So we're not a primary service. We work with kind of moderate to severe presentations. And often it would start off with an assessment interview with the young person and their family or a family member. And there's often a range of things that we would ask about, but commonly people come in with a depressive episode or with struggles with anxiety or with a trauma background or with kind of social difficulties that they're struggling to manage. So certainly it would never be the NSSI that we're looking at in isolation, but I would see that more as, as a symptom of other things that are going on for that young person and within that family context. 
In terms of the kind of reason for entering the service, we often get referrals through GPs, general practitioners, or through a school nurse or through a school counsellor. And we do have a self-referral pathway, which is often instigated by a parent. But most young people do have some motivation to work on the difficulties that they're experiencing. So it's not just instigated by the parent, but working on the self-injury is not likely to be necessarily the first thing that they are interested in changing or working on or understanding for themselves. When you're assessing for self-injury, how do you do so within the therapy context? Are there specific ways that you ask questions related to self-injury? We would have a screening interview with a young person in their family, and I would ask about the self-injury within an overall assessment protocol. Often for me, it comes up when I discuss emotional distress. So often after asking questions about mood or anxiety, if that's the primary presenting difficulty, I would say something along the lines of, I'm aware that for some young people, when they struggle with their mood or when they struggle with anxiety, particularly if that's been going on for a while, they'll search for ways to manage that. And in the moment, some people choose to engage in self-injury or hurt themselves on purpose. For example, they might cut or burn their skin, and I would then ask them, given that things have been difficult for you for a while, I was just wanting to check out whether that's something that you've done or are doing. So I'd go about it in that way. And you ask every teenager, every adolescent that you treat that same question then? Yes, possibly worded slightly differently, but... Yeah, that's the general gist of what I would ask as part of my screening question. And certainly within our research lab in the youth wellbeing study, we do know that for New Zealanders, for young New Zealanders, up to half have engaged in MSSI at least once, depending on your research sample. So that's been with secondary school students and with undergraduate students. So given the prevalence and given that we could hypothesize that the prevalence is even higher for people who access moderate to severe mental health services, such as the one I work in, it's a really important question to ask. And through that questioning, I can also get a sense of whether there's challenges associated with that behaviour for that young person, um, based on kind of their nonverbal responses as well, whether there's a degree of shame, for example, and things like that. So opening up that conversation, for me, it's really important for that to be validating, responsive to their distress, and also being sensitive to things like shame as well. Yeah. Did you say that up to half of New Zealander adolescents have self-injured? Yeah, it depends what research figure you go with. So during my PhD, which was in the late 2000s, I did some research in secondary schools and it was about 47% of young people. We've done more recent research with a slightly younger population. So that initial figure was with 16 to 18 year olds. We've done some research now with 13 to 18 year olds and in the younger 13, 14 year old age group, it's about 22%. And that figure climbs gradually by the time someone leaves secondary school, it's up to about 30, the late 30s. Yeah. That sounds higher than the global lifetime prevalence rate of adolescent self-injury, which is usually about one in five or 18 to 22%. So it's interesting to hear that it's higher in New Zealand. So it's a, it's a multi-item measure as well that we'd be using. So we use the deliberate self-harm inventory, which asks about 16 different forms of NSSI. And most of the research that I've referred back to in terms of those statistics often ask, say, one or two questions in terms of a screening question. So I do wonder about, obviously, the way it's assessed and how that then impacts on the prevalence rates. What wording do you use when you discuss self-injury? Is it the child's wording, your own wording, the parent's wording, as far as how they reference their own self-injury and the term they use? As a general rule for most behaviors, I try and use the child's wording if I can. And in saying that if there's any kind of problematic 
if there's a problematic framing that they might use, or if it's kind of derogatory in any way, or if they're putting themselves down in the way they might frame their self-injury, then I would move that to more of a, a validating and kind of containing language. So it depends how they describe it. But often the young people that I work with, they would refer to their self-injury as self-harm or self-injury. They would usually use those terms. So I haven't come into many struggles with just adopting the language that they use. As a psychologist, as a clinician, I know, like you had said, similar to me, a lot come to me to treat the depression or anxiety, and sometimes the self-injury comes up in the context of therapy, but usually by the time they get to therapy, parents are already aware of their child's self-injury by the time I see them. Not not always, but often. So some parents are already aware of their child's self-injury, and it's a reason why they bring them to you for therapy, but other parents don't know their child is self-injuring, and it only comes up in the context of therapy. So thinking about confidentiality and when we talk to parents and what we disclose to them, when and how do you tell parents about their child's self-injury? In other words, for parents already aware of their child's self-injury, do you inform them every single time they self-injure? If not, when do you? And then for parents completely unaware of their child's self-injury, when would you choose to disclose that to them? Yeah, it's an important question, isn't it? And, and very nuanced, actually. And I would try to head things off at the past a little bit in that initial assessment interview I spoke about. So when people first enter the service, they have an assessment interview. Usually what I would do at that point, along with that kind of screening, series of screening questions around mental health and well-being, I would usually ask the young person that question around NSSI that I mentioned earlier, check out their comfort level with talking about that. So I might say, we can talk about that with your parent in the room now. So the interview would start off ordinarily with the young person and the parent or the caregiver together. And I would say, it'd be great to talk with you about this now, but I'm aware that that can be difficult for some young people and they prefer to discuss that one-on-one with me. Do you have a preference? So they might then indicate, oh, I'll talk about it with you by myself, but not with mum here, for example. And when that happens, then I would often ask the young person if they're happy for me to just ask their parent a few questions about this kind of area that I want to understand. So then I would say something like, you as a parent, are you aware of any kind of risk concerns or are you concerned about your child self-injuring? And then I would get that information from the parent because it may be that the parent has an inkling of that and also it's useful to gauge the parents reaction to the thought that their young person might be self-injuring because they might be relatively open to that discussion and that gives me a sense of if I later discover that the young person is self-injuring that this parent is able to talk through that relatively easily and has some understanding for example of why a young person might engage in that kind of behavior I would kind of address that a little bit in the assessment interview And then I think your next question was around kind of when a child is or a young person is injuring, would I tell the parent every time? So firstly, I might not know about every time. So the young person might not tell me if they have recently been self-injuring. So it depends on kind of the information that I would have. I think it can be quite anxiety provoking for families to be given details every time the young person arms himself. So it depends on the family system and how they respond to that behaviour. And also very much depends on the age of the child. So in New Zealand, if I'm working with a young person who's 16 years or older, I do need to be really careful, as with a younger child as well, but to um, sort of different degrees, around what I share with the parents. So in New Zealand, if you're 16 years or older, you don't have to involve a parent in therapy at all if you don't want to. Additionally, I would only be able to break confidentiality if I have concerns about 
immediate and significant risk as I would with an adult. So there's that factor as well to feed into it. So I would need very much need the child, young person consent if they're 16 or older. And even when they're under 16, obviously I'll be looking for consent as well for lots of reasons, including just maintaining the therapy relationship. A, I'd be looking at consent concerns. And secondly, early on in treatment, if both the child, the young person and the parent are able to discuss that self-injury behavior, I'd probably begin with an understanding that A, this child is regularly self-injuring. This is the general method or this is the general frequency. This is how it managed. So an agreement of what the young person might do in terms of managing any kind of wounds that they might need to look after, for example, and also how they can seek out support from their parent or from their family. And there will be an agreement that if there's an escalation in the behaviors or I had any concerns, then I would talk about that with the parent or the family. So I wouldn't necessarily let them know every time because there'll be an understanding that this behavior is going on. This is how it's being managed. This is my understanding or my formulation of the problem. And this is what we're working on. I'll let you know if things change or I'll let you know if there's an increase in the severity of the self-injury, for example, and I'm more concerned, for example. And then we can form a, a change in the plan to support that child or that young person to be safe. That's interesting in New Zealand that 16-year-olds can consent to their own therapy without their parents' knowledge. It's not quite like that here in the United States, at least in Texas. You have to be 18. Well, there are some exceptions, such as seeking treatment for substance misuse or if there's been abuse or risk for suicide. And even then, though, parents, they get a bill, they can probably refute that if they didn't consent for it. But that's interesting in New Zealand. Those that are 16 can consent to treatment. Yes, and it's very uncommon that we don't have the parents involved and it would be strongly advocated for unless there's very significant safety concerns obviously around involving the parent and working carefully with that. Yeah, um, but those are very rare cases. And how often do you see adolescents who self-injure whose parents are completely unaware? Actually, not that often in my service. I imagine it might be more common in sort of primary level care. So, so often when, when people enter my service, there is some chronicity to the NSSI. And by that stage, most kind of close loved ones are aware that it has been happening. They might think that it's happened in the past and that it's not current. So then we might need to have a conversation about this is still going on for your young person or your child. And again, this is the plan that we have in place and this is how you can support them. And I would always endeavor to have that conversation collaboratively with the young person to see how they would like me to frame that to their parent or their caregiver and sharing our understanding that we put together around why they self-injure and the function of it and any kind of cycles that are going on for them with that behavior. And through that kind of understanding that it's not so much the behavior, it's actually what is driving the behavior and the consequence of the behavior that we want to look at um, and how can the parent be involved in the treatment plan. I think that's a good thing for us to consider and keep in mind is that we don't want to overfocus on the actual behavior and like become so focused yes. on just the behavior that we forget about the person. Absolutely. That we forget about the emotional drivers and whatever's going on there. So that's a good reminder. Yeah. And I had wanted to say, actually, reflecting on what you've just said, that in that initial assessment, I wouldn't ask about NSSI early on. It would be after gaining some rapport, understanding that person in terms of their interests, what they value, what their hopes are for treatment, better understanding them separate from their self-injury. Because usually we set aside about nine minutes for that first interview. 
So in the initial section, I would get to know the young person, get to know the people that are important in their life, get to know what their interests are, and then kind of towards an understanding of their mental health, including their self-injury. Because I think it's important not to just start with a deficit focus, right? Mm -hmm. I'd like to start with a strength-based focus first, and then I can separate out them and their intentions from the behaviors that are keeping them stuck. Thinking about age here in disclosing to parents about self-injury, how does age play a role here? So younger students, maybe 12, 13-year-olds who start self-injuring, do you work with them and their parents differently than you would, say, maybe a 17-year-old and their parents? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So a, um, a 12 or 13-year-old, I would be doing a lot more parent work together with the child or the young person. It obviously depends on developmental level, right? Because even though someone's chronological age might be 12 or 13, I've met some 12 or 13 year olds that actually function more like a 15 year old or the vice versa, more like an eight year old. So I wanna be kind of conscious of their developmental level and their emotional developmental level, right? So that's certainly a factor that I would consider. But for younger children, I would certainly be looking at involving the parents more actively in co-work and within sessions, perhaps spending some time with the young person on own but then coming back to their parents joining the session so it is it is different the work is definitely different and at age 17 i'd be thinking about well this this young person developmentally should be springboarding into individuation right and so um and into being a more independent young adult so i would want to also think about how does their self-injury potentially relate to their relationships that they're establishing in more of an independent setting and how can they reach out to supports that don't just involve their parents, especially if they're considering kind of moving across the country to go to university next year. I don't want to form a tight plan that is reliant on parent involvement if I know that parents aren't going to be easily accessed in six months. So the way I would do treatment would be quite different. Yeah, I know a lot of parents actually listen to this podcast. And so I'm trying to keep them in mind as we talk about this here, because sometimes including parents, like you said, every time can be just overwhelming. Mm. It is unnecessary yeah. if there's no change, no significant change one way or the other. Yes. And on the other hand, sometimes, especially for younger adolescents, 12, 13 years old, that are maybe a little bit more developmentally young, they sometimes respond well to their parents knowing right away and their parents saying, all right, yes. we're not going to do this. And then they stop. Absolutely. And then they learn healthier coping strategies right then and there were that might not work with a 16 or 17 year old it, it might sometimes but probably less frequently yeah I would say less frequently that's absolutely right and actually it does make me wonder with a younger child say a 12 year old the NSSI or the self-injury might serve to function to communicate something to their parents that they maybe aren't able to do verbally for example and actually sit down together and talking through when the self-injury occurs what that might be like for the child what they're trying to communicate actually allows some shifts and gives the child some language potentially around what they're trying to communicate to their parent. In my experience, when it's a younger child, often the self-injury is more overt and in the context of kind of relationship struggles because they're struggling potentially to communicate what they need. And so I, I do find that that parent and that work with the parents becomes much more pivotal and, and putting some understanding around it can actually lead to change quite relatively quickly in comparison to the 16 or 17 year olds that I work with. So let's talk a little bit about the treatment, working with young people who self-injure. What approach do you typically take in treatment and what have you found to be most effective in addressing non-suicidal self-injury? 
I have a few therapy modalities that I draw upon in my treatment. And I first get a sense of what the young person and their family has tried before to get a sense of what's been effective or what hasn't been effective in the past and kind of getting a sense of why. So often when people come in to see me, they have had work with other therapists. So it is important to me to check out what's been useful and what isn't. And sometimes there's a bit of an aversion to strategies that have been taught before for whatever reason. And so those wouldn't be the first ones I start with, but I might revisit them later and have a discussion around perhaps why they didn't work the first time and is there more openness to giving them a go this time around. I use DBT or dialectical behaviour therapy quite a lot in my practice. We don't have a running DBT group at the moment, but I use DBT informed therapy. So I would often initially uh, check out the willingness, of course, to change that behaviour or a willingness to try to do things differently and see what that's like and get a sense first of what the young person is already using to manage urges to self-injury if they have urges that they don't respond to by engaging in the behaviour. So I might, for example, look through the tip skills from DBT, so the use of temperature, intense exercise, pace breathing, for example, to manage distress that might be the kind of antecedent or be part of what happens before someone engages in self-harm. I've also been privileged enough to receive some training in EIGT, so an emotion regulation group therapy by Kim Bratz and Matthew Tell. So several years ago, we had them come to New Zealand and run a training, which was really awesome. And I still use that material in my individual work and find that really helpful. For me, some of the useful components of that initially are checking out around beliefs about emotions and why someone might have quite a tendency to kind of push away emotions and their distress and whether that relates to some beliefs about emotions as unhelpful or negative, for example. Yeah, so those are two modalities I use. I also use acceptance and commitment therapy quite a bit. I really enjoy getting to know what young people's values are and how that relates to what they want more of in their life. And through addressing and kind of promoting that, that's a pathway towards wellness right, is having people have more in their life that they enjoy and that they love and the barriers that might be in place that make it hard to get that. And I do find as the scales tip towards having more of those things, there's less of a need for some of those behaviours that are managing distress like the self-injury or there might be increasing motivation to look at doing things differently. So those are some of the things I use. I also use motivational interviewing techniques, particularly if there's like a bit of ambivalence around whether they remain in that cycle of self-injury or whether they kind of move away from that and look at doing things differently. We'll definitely do an episode on dialectical behavior therapy and hopefully with Kim Gratz and Matthew Tall on emotion regulation group therapy in the near future. Ah, awesome. You had just mentioned motivational interviewing, which leads me to my very next question. (laughs) And one that I, when I do my lectures, I inform those in the audiences that not everyone who engages in self-injury sees it as a problem. So let's say a young person doesn't see a need to stop self-injuring or doesn't see it as a problem. Mm -hmm. How do you respond and do you focus on creating motivation to change or you just simply accept their decision to continue to engage in the behavior and focus on other things in therapy? Yeah, great question. Initially, I would actually be a bit of a naive inquirer, really, to better understand, I guess, why their reasons for um, maintaining the behavior or keeping it going or what it is about the self-injury that's that's attractive and means they don't actually want to be rid of it. I'd want to understand that a little bit more. So I would come from a bit of a naive inquirer stance to better understand what what's underlying that for this this young person. I always find that trying to change a young person's position on something that they're quite strongly 
they have a quite strongly hold posi held position on is ultimately unhelpful and erodes the therapy relationship. So I would never go head on and try to dissuade them from their choices. I would more want to understand what's underlying that choice and then get a sense of a bit of a chain, for example, a chain analysis of their self-injury and understand the kind of immediate consequences of that behavior, but the longer term consequences as well. And kind of what's good about that, what's not so good about that. So use a bit of a motivational interviewing approach and Socratic questioning really to see if there's any ambivalence about keeping the behavior going and whether I can use that ambivalence to slowly see if they're willing to experiment with doing things differently. I wouldn't take it as a, you either kind of stop doing it or you don't. I would be more about kind of let's experiment with what it might be like to see what it's like to not act on that urge, for example. That's not to say in five minutes or 10 minutes time, you don't act on that urge, but I'd be really interested to hear what it's like if you choose not to or you choose to distract for five minutes and come back and tell me what that was like, I'd be super keen to hear more. So more of working collaboratively with the young person around their decision and that ambivalence and then actually choosing to focus on the underlying stuff. So what's underlying that behavior? So focusing on the difficulties with mood or when anxiety gets in the way. Yeah, so I would kind of keep bringing it up, but in a more of like a conversational, naive inquirer way and then address the factors that underlie the behavior. I think many times it's the parents that may want them to stop, understandably so. Yeah, absolutely. But none of us is really very good at accomplishing the goals that other people have for us. And if we are, it's not usually the lives that we want to be living necessarily. Yeah. Talking about parents then who understandably want their child to stop self-injuring immediately, really, but we know that cessation of self-injury is typically a process and recurrence of episodes of self-injury can be expected even when in therapy. In other words, telling them to stop may not get their child to stop cold turkey. So what advice do you have for parents specifically about their expectations for therapy and helping their child stop engaging in self-injury? Well, first and foremost, my initial stance is always to validate the distress. It's really understandable that a parent would feel distressed about their child self-injuring. It can be a shock. Parents can experience a range of different emotions when they first learn of their child self-injury and when they learn that it's been repeated, for example. So I'd first want to validate that and normalize that and have a bit of a conversation about what emotions come up for the parent in an interview separate from the child. Some of that response the parent has needs to be worked through separately from the child's process because the parent will have their own process um, and potentially their own history, for example, who knows? Um, so unpacking that a bit with the parent on their own would be really important. And then I'd probably ask the parent about behaviours that they found hard to stop, but they know that they would like to stop or it would be better for them if they stopped and get them to reflect on what was it like for them when they tried to create change in their life with a behaviour that felt really stuck and try to generate some empathy and understanding for their child's process and also reflecting on that they can think about that in their adult brain. They can reflect on the challenges in their adult brain and their child might not actually have the same ability to do so and might need some coaching and validation around that process. So I would talk with the parent about how it's really challenging to change a behaviour particularly if it's been going on for a long time and talk a bit about the cycle of self-injury as well in terms of Usually there's a, behavior, there's a situation or a context for when it occurs, like an argument or a distressing situation. The child then might respond with self-injury and then following that, there'll be kind of a sequelae. 
stuff that happens following it. And some of that's immediate, like potentially that offsetting some of the child's distress in the moment, for example, or refocusing their attention. But following the behavior, actually, there can be quite a lot of shame. And sometimes the parent's response might inadvertently reinforce that shame, not through the intention of the parent, but through actually the, the parent's intention for the behavior to stop because they care for their child. Parents' responses to self-injury do remind me a little bit of the um, protection trap that we talk about a lot in parenting programs. So this idea that parents drive to love and care for and protect their child is so strong that when they see their child in distress, they'll want to remove the distress as quickly as possible, often. But by removing that distress, they reduce opportunities for the child to learn that they can cope and they reduce opportunities to kind of practice with the child managing through challenge. And I think there's a parallel in self-injury in that if we, for example, remove any opportunity to self-injure for that child, we're not learning, we're not teaching them or supporting them to manage those contexts that are just going to come up anyway and managing that cycle alongside them. And it's really hard. And I can say this as a clinician and a, and a researcher, and I think as a parent, there's, there's much more underlying that response that needs to be considered. Even when there's the temptation to self-injure or the actual behavior of self-injury, rarely is it severe enough to be considered at risk for suicide or so severe that medical attention would be required. Those obviously would be instances in which the parent would need to intervene. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very rare, as you say. Yeah. Some parents see recurrences of self-injury as one step forward and as two steps backwards, especially if their child is in therapy. Is this fair? I kind of um, hesitate to say that any kind of generalized view is fair because individuals are so different, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I think that it's incredibly brave to enter into therapy. And I think that through entering into therapy, young people are opening up conversations that are hard to have. And that potentially they've avoided for quite some time. So there is a possibility that when someone starts working on their self-injury and is open to having conversations or talking about stuff that's hard, that actually they have even more distress to manage, potentially, initially, before they get the skills to kind of manage and formulate and understand what that's about for them. So I wouldn't see continuance of the self-injury as any sort of failure. I want to understand how that's occurring for that young person and what's the driver for it. And also I'd want to understand the context of the reoccurrence. So it might be actually that they have self-injured again, but they actually managed to surf the urge for a lot longer than they ordinarily would. So it might be that initially when they enter treatment, they have an urge to self-injure and they do that relatively quickly and potentially impulsively. But perhaps working through treatment, they've become more mindful of that tendency, developed other strategies to cope and to manage that distress when it comes up. And if they've managed to surf the urge for quite some time and, yes, perhaps have still engaged engaged in the self-injury, I would actually see that as a success. They're learning to tolerate the distress for longer and hopefully that will be kind of a, an up, uphill trajectory of positive change for that child or for that young person. So it certainly depends on the context in which it's occurred and the function at the time for that behavior. So if their child continues to engage in self-injury, even when in therapy, some parents say that their child's just not trying hard enough or they're not putting forth enough effort in treatment, even if they really are. Mm -hmm. As a clinician, as a therapist, psychologist, you see that this child is working hard, but the behavior may still be occurring and their parents are saying, you're not trying hard enough. You're not Mm -hmm. putting forth enough effort. How do we respond Mm -hmm. to this? (laughs) 
I'd want to understand first what is trying hard enough to the parent. So what would be that ideal picture for them of their child engaging effectively in therapy? And I'd probably note that down on a whiteboard, for example, and then give the child or the young person the opportunity to say what they think working hard in therapy looks like to actually get a sense of the differing views that might be going on or the different motivations for change or the different goals actually for entering therapy. So as we kind of referred to earlier, parents' goals might be to stop the self-injury. A child's goal might be actually potentially to have less depressive symptoms. And that doesn't necessarily initially connect for them, although of course, often they are connected. So I'd wanna understand that difference between the young person and the parent. It might involve working with the parents separately for a wee bit in terms of understanding whether their expectation is realistic at the current time in terms of that change and whether they can note down other changes that they observe in their young person through therapy, like maybe greater school attendance, for example, better sleep, a improved relationship or improved relationships at home, and actually get those attended to by the context or by the parents and praised rather than focusing specifically on the behavior. And one more question specifically about the behavior. <laughs> parents, I mean, we understand that they're worried they're worried about their child. We as parents yeah. are worried about our children. Absolutely, yeah. And in these cases, particularly if they self-injure, so they might feel worried that they're going to self-injure when they're away at camp or visiting mm. family or friends away from home. Mm. And then some parents see a recurrence of self-injury as an indicator that their child is still struggling and need constant supervision. So they decide to keep them home from camp or from vacation. Mm. Is this a good approach? And if not, is there a better approach? I would always preface the response to this kind of question with, it depends on the client, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, and the age of the client. As with any challenging situation that is happening in the future for any of my clients, I would start to think about how can we upskill that child or that young person and the system around them at camp, for example, to be able to respond to the distress that might come up. Can we anticipate what kinds of situations might happen that might make it more likely that the child or the young person will self-injure? And forming a bit of a plan around that and even possibly doing some exposure to the kinds of challenges that might come up at camp. So if it's about separation from the parent, for example, well then can we have a bit of a graded exposure plan around being away from that parent prior to the camp occurring? So obviously some of that's dependent on how close in time the camp's happening because that can make certain strategies harder to kind of implement beforehand. For me, it goes back to that idea of the protection trap. What message are we sending the child or the young person in terms of their skill and their ability to cope? Because it, it's really powerful to send a message to a child or a young person of, I believe that you have the skills. I know that you can do it. How can I support you to use those skills when this challenge come up, comes up at camp? And potentially, if the child or the young person is willing to share some, some information, is there someone at camp that they really relate to or find supportive? And can that person then be brought into the picture in terms of reminding the child or the young person what they can do if things are hard? Or if the child or young person benefits from some time out on their own, to use some strategies like breathing or mindfulness or whatever, sensory modulation strategies for calming, then is there a space they can go to at the camp to help them use those strategies effectively to be able to manage? So my first inclination would be let's support them to do a age-appropriate activity. And then if there are obviously significant safety concerns, then we wouldn't want to be putting the child at pretty significant risk. So there's a balance there. 
I like that approach in the sense that it's more focused on if you're having a tough time at camp, because we know that you want to go, how can you cope in a way that is not going to go directly to self-injury? And as your parent, as your mother, as your father, I want to make sure that we set you up for success for that. Rather than say, I see you you just self-injured a week or two ago, I don't think you need to go to camp because you're not ready. Absolutely. That to me is probably a less helpful approach, but mm. I do know parents really want to protect their child. Like you said, there's that protection trap that a lot of parents yes. <laughs> fall into so understandably. Yes, absolutely. But sometimes I think when a child or adolescent discloses their self-injury to their parent or to us in therapy, that itself is a, an indicator of growth, knowing what's at stake, that they could lose camp. They want to go to camp, yeah. but they're trying to be honest with their parents. Mm-hmm. But then knowing that their parents might say, well, you can't go to camp now that could be a harsh response i think for some yeah absolutely and it might it might lead to more secrecy if the young person knows that they'll lose out on things that they enjoy if the parent is aware of the behavior so it's it's a really fine balance because certainly i do see that as an indication of growth uh, of growth and wanting to um, praise the child for their honesty and their willingness to share that is really important And I bring up this example of camp because here in the United States, it's summertime. So there are a lot of camps going on, even when people are listening to this, because it it could be anything like family vacation. It could be holidays just in general. But I think the same approach, the same ideas apply. Yeah. Based on our conversation today, we talked a lot about recommendations for parents. What else might you recommend to parents of children who self-injure or have self-injured? With parent work, I often have a few key go-to ideas that I like to talk through. And one of them is emotional validation. That's incorporated into all the parent work that I do. Talking with a parent around how they respond to their child's distress and whether they're able to kind of reflect back and notice what their child is experiencing and how might they feedback that noticing and put that uh, emotion into context for their child. So it might be kind of giving words to it. Like I can see that this is really hard for you. That makes sense. It's great that you're giving it a go, for example. So providing some emotional validation for the child and just incorporating that into the language that they use at home, which can make talking about emotions easier over time. So that's one of the things I would talk about with parents routinely and also about one-on-one time. So I think it's obvious when we have younger children that they need us there and they need our supervision often. They need kind of really active, loving care in the moment regularly through the day for a very young child. And I think it becomes less obvious as young people transition into adolescence that actually they do need their parent there. And even when a young person pushes that away, So the opportunities for connection away by saying kind of go away mum, go away dad, or however they might say it, it's still needed. There's that kind of tension for a young person between wanting closeness with their family or their parent and actually wanting autonomy. So how do you stay connected to your young person or your adolescents whilst also supporting them towards their autonomy? I would kind of get parents to reflect on how they do that. What ways do they connect with their young person? And having a regular time in the week or over several days, so several times in the week where they spend quality one-on-one time with their young person. And it doesn't have to be for a long period of time. And it might not be doing an activity that the parent actually enjoys. It might be watching a, a, a Netflix series that actually the parent doesn't want to watch, but it's not about that. It's about spending time with their young person. So I would talk about like what gets in the way of that one one-on-one time and those opportunities to connect and how can that be kind of more actively cultivated. So that's one of the things that I would talk about with parents. 
and what are the kind of barriers that might come up and how might they respond to those. I like that last part, entering into their child's world, doing activities, even if they don't like it as a parent, they can really connect to their child and enter their world, whether it's, like you said, watching a Netflix show that they otherwise wouldn't watch or playing Fortnite with their child. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, other clinicians and therapists, as well as other researchers? Well, um, based on what you've said, you're including in this podcast is I think listening to um, some of the conversations would be really helpful because you're obviously approaching lots of people from different spheres of the NSSI research and clinical space. So I'm looking forward to hearing more and including talking about dialectical behavior therapy and the podcast you hope to do with congrats and Matthew Tull. So opportunities to learn from others, I think, is really important. As a clinician, I really enjoy learning different ways that people describe or talk about NSSI or different metaphors. I find metaphors incredibly powerful in my practice and often young people supply those themselves in session. But learning how other clinicians might frame it is just some more ideas in my toolbox around how I might talk about it with a client. Because one way of talking about it might resonate with some of my clients, but another way might resonate better with others. So learning from each other and making time for group discussions about how other people talk about and engage with young people who self-injure is really important. So I guess, yeah, just talking with your colleagues and spending time to be reflective. I know that mental health services, at least in our country, are really precious and it's sometimes hard to make the time to um, talk collectively with our peers, but I think it's so powerful and useful. You mentioned metaphors. Do you have a favorite go-to metaphor that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, I, I'd be afraid that I wouldn't be referencing someone because I'm not sure where it came from, but I, I enjoy um, a lot of the metaphors from acceptance and commitment therapy. But the one I probably use most commonly with self-injury is this idea of pushing emotions away and that in the immediate or short term, it can be quite appealing to not experience certain emotions. And so I talk about sort of pushing those emotions away like you might push a beach ball down under the water if you're in a pool or if you're um, at the beach. And you can only hold it there for so long until it kind of pops up and hits you in the face. So if we choose not to tend to an emotion or push it away, ultimately it's still going to come and potentially at the most least opportune time, shall we say. Yeah, so that's one of the metaphors I use. But there are many, many others. So I, I really enjoy the wave metaphors that come from DBT. There's many, many of them. The beach ball one's a really good one. Mm. And lastly, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? I think the stories that people with lived experience have are incredibly powerful to share. And I myself have learned a lot from generally people who've kind of entered out of adolescence. So in their 20s or 30s, I've learned a tremendous amount about what that journey has been like and how different it is, which again, I think speaks to the fact that it's not so much the behavior, it's more the journey that occurs because of the things that underlie the behavior or why it's occurring. In our research lab, we run an annual workshop for pastoral care workers in schools. And we've been fortunate enough to have people from our community come in and present to those pastoral workers on their lived experience of self-injury. And I know that's been by far the most enjoyed and appreciated workshop at those annual events. So I think it's a real gift to share that experience and be able to learn from it. It does give us as clinicians new insight into what that is like, because for myself and my work, I often don't see 
what recovery is like for the clients I work with. I work with them in times of distress and hopefully can support them to move through that. But I don't often see what it's like five years down the track, 10 years down the track. And those stories need to be heard. Sharing those in a space that feels comfortable and with people um, close is, I think, important. Yeah. I love that recommendation. Even at IS, we are creating a platform for individuals mm-hmm. with lived experience to share. Just at the conference this past June, we had a number of individuals with lived experience speak and share their um, experiences. And we can all mm-hmm. learn from that. And like you said, it's, it's really nice to see the other side mm-hmm. working with young people. I don't necessarily see how they're doing or hear from them. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel very fortunate that those stories are being shared and can be shared more readily with others. It's awesome. My hope for today's conversation is that it provides clinicians, researchers, people with lived experience, parents, greater understanding of what might happen behind closed doors in the therapy context for anyone listening. And it's nice as a clinician myself, as a psychologist that does therapy, to be able to talk back and forth with another therapist to see what you do and how that compares to what I do, but give you the space to really share your expertise. So thank you, Dr. Garish, for sharing your knowledge and your clinical advice and how you approach things. I'm hoping that it's going to be a a helpful episode for people listening to know about the general ins and outs of the therapy context. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And I hope it's helpful. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy. So if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, You can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.